Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about immunization and vaccinations. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice, so don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steve Annette as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. Okay, here we are on a topic that has been controversial for years, but we're going to try and make it a little less controversial by sharing information with people so that they can make up their own minds what they think about it has to do with immunization and vaccinations. So what is immunization and what are vaccinations? There's actually a big difference between the two of them, even though many people believe they're synonymous and often replace the word vaccination with immunization when they receive a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Like uh, somebody receives a flu vaccine at their local drugstore and instead of calling it a vaccination, they instead call it an immunization. Correct. So let's clarify what each of them are and why they're different. All right. So I'll start with immunization. This means to make someone immune to something, which basically means you are resistant to an infection or an infectious disease. Mm -hmm. And vaccination, by contrast, according to Dorland's Medical Dictionary, specifically means to inject a suspension of attenuated, which means weakened or killed microorganisms, which are bacteria or viruses. And it's administered for prevention or treatment of an infectious disease. Right. Now, the key point is that just because you've received a vaccination, this does not guarantee that you are immunized. That's what a lot of people think, though. Yeah, many people believe that once you're vaccinated, you're completely protected, but that belief is not correct. Right. So let me just summarize this in simple terms. Vaccines contain a dead or alive weakened germ that can cause a particular infectious disease, let's say like tetanus. Mm -hmm. And when we're given a vaccine shot, our body's immune system normally immediately produces antibodies against the germ. Right. And the hope is that if this germ ever enters the body again, the body is now immune to it, but this is not the case with all vaccines. Okay. Yeah. And you're going to give us a lot more information on that, I bet. That's right. And according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, no vaccine is 100% effective. And most routine childhood vaccines are effective for 85 to 90% of recipients with measles being about 98% effective when used as recommended. Okay. Yeah. Can immunization occur without a vaccination? Is that possible? And if it is, how does that occur? Great question. Yes. So there's this thing called natural immunity which each and every one of us is born with. And, and that's the native ability to fight off infections through the three lines of defense of the immune system. Okay, what are those? 
I thought I'd go over those. Yeah. So the first line of defense against infections are the surface barriers that prevent entry into the body. And these include the skin, the mucous membranes of the re respiratory system in your gut, and your lymphatic system. And the second line of defense are the responses of nonspecific white blood cells and other mechanisms of the body. And these include the Pac-Man-like white blood cells called phagocytes that literally eat up foreign material. Right. And we also have anti-infection proteins throughout the body that help with this. Okay. And of course, there's the inflammation response of the body, which we went over in great detail in podcast number 13 on inflammation. That's right. And then fever, the mechanism of fever, which we also went over in podcast number 11 on the flu. Mm -hmm. And then there's the third line of defense of the body. These are the specific white blood cells called lymphocytes that produce antibodies as part of the adaptive immune response. Mm -hmm. And this is what vaccines focus on as they are injected directly into the bloodstream. But the problem with this is that the first two lines of defense of the body are totally bypassed. And the other problem is that vaccines tend to overstimulate the immune system, which can lead to autoimmune reactions and diseases. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So the body's natural immunity is also enhanced by the natural birthing process as opposed to C-section, since a natural birth along with breastfeeding helps to complete a newborn's immune system by the passing along of important antibodies. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. And of course, probiotics are also important as they are a vital part of the gut's immune system too. Right. We went into a lot of that in the plant paradox episode, and the book goes into it in even greater detail. That's right. And then supplements, especially the vitamins A, B, C, and D are also essential for a healthy and strong immune system. Mm -hmm. And finally, natural immunity is improved through eating organic non-GMO foods and avoiding immune system killers like sugar and excessive milk. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, sugar, there's one study that showed that two teaspoons of sugar shuts down your immune system for five hours, in particular, the activity of one of the key types of white blood cells involved in the second line of defense against infections. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And milk happens to be the most constipating food. It also clogs up the lymph system, which is part of the body's first line of defense. And many children that drink it often suffer from chronic repeated ear and strep infections, myself included, mm -hmm. when I was a child. Right. Of course, you had goat's milk. You didn't drink that much cow's milk. Well, we thought that I grew out of that allergy. And as I got older, we introduced milk again, and I kept getting strep infections. Okay. All right. So then which were the first vaccinations that were given, and when was that? So the first recorded and published successful vaccination occurred in 1796 in England when a country doctor by the name of Edward Jenner injected material from cowpox pustules. That's a type of smallpox that cows have. Mm -hmm. He injected this from a milkmaid's hand into an eight-year-old boy. And then six weeks later, he injected the boy at two locations on his arm with actual smallpox. Hmm. And then he later exposed the boy again with additional exposures to smallpox, and the boy did not develop smallpox. Okay. So Jenner was also credited with coining the term vaccination from the Latin word for cow, which is vacca, and cowpox, which is vaccinia. Oh. Now, there's evidence that an early form of smallpox vaccines existed as far back as 1000 BC in China, and then later in Africa, and finally Turkey before it was utilized throughout Europe. Oh, that's interesting. I'd never heard of anything like that before. Yeah, well, I'm sure you've heard of inoculation. Mm-hmm. 
So that was the forerunner of vaccination, and it was practiced in Africa, India, and China long before the 18th century when it was first introduced to Europe. Uh-huh. And it was actually called also variolation, which meant that a healthy, uninfected individual was injected with the material taken from the pustules of someone infected with a mild form of smallpox, which is also called variola. Mm-hmm. There's the word variolation. And the intention was to have that person also develop a mild case of smallpox to create immunity to it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this procedure was introduced to Turkey in 1670, which was well over 100 years before Jenner's vaccine. Mm -hmm. And it was introduced to the Ottoman Empire by traders who brought them women from the Caucasus, who were known for their legendary beauty and in great demand by the Turkish sultan's harem in Istanbul, of course. Okay. These women were inoculated or variolated as children in parts of their bodies where scars would not be seen. You see, the problem with smallpox was not only its high fatality rate, but of those who ended up surviving it, about a third went blind and the majority had disfiguring scars, which led to its nickname in 18th century England, the speckled monster. Wow. Yeah. So, of course, these beautiful women didn't want to have scars all over their faces because then they would lose their value of beauty. Right. Yeah. So variolation then came to Europe at the beginning of the 18th century with the arrival of travelers from Turkey and eventually became widely practiced throughout Europe until Jenner's discovery. Hmm. And in fact, even Jenner himself as an eight-year-old boy was successfully inoculated with smallpox. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the next significant vaccine was developed for rabies in 1885 by the famous French scientist Louis Pasteur. Right. And then a bunch of new vaccines were rapidly produced during the 1930s, including diphtheria, tetanus, anthrax, cholera, plague, typhoid, and tuberculosis. All right. So all these were considered huge medical breakthroughs and given credit for saving many lives and, you know, deservedly so. But I would also like to point out that there were other discoveries that are not common knowledge that I learned when I attended an outstanding seminar on vaccines put on by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny in Cleveland, Ohio, back in 2001. Who knew that by keeping these notes that one day I would be using them on a podcast? (laughs) There you go. Now you know why you kept them all these years. Yeah. So Dr. Tenpenny covered the history of vaccination and included a diagram going over the true origin of many of the infectious diseases that led to previous and current vaccinations. And she called these infections the filth diseases of the 18th and 19th century because of the primary ways that they were actually transmitted, mainly poor sanitation and poor living conditions. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd go over these. Okay. So the real true origin of typhus is body lice. The plague, of all things, came from rat lice. Right. Typhoid and cholera comes from contaminated water. Okay. Tetanus from horse manure. Of course, you can get it from stepping on a you know, rusty nail, too. Mm-hmm. But here's the big one, smallpox. Guess where that came from? Don't know. Where did it come from? Bed bugs. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So there was a doctor who was credited with discovering that smallpox was spread through the bites of bed bugs, Dr. Charles A.R. Campbell, and his report was published in Bacteria, Inc. in 1949. And he also discovered that the severity of the disease was proportional to the degree of malnutrition in each individual. Hmm. So that would explain when they had the plagues throughout history. Some people survived, some people didn't. It was likely because some people were malnourished or their immune systems weren't as good, but not everybody died. Yeah, that's true. 
1980, the World Health Organization announced that the world was free of smallpox and recommended that all countries stop vaccinations for it. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is, was it due more to mass vaccination programs or improved sanitation worldwide? Good question. Yeah. And the fact is that up until the 1900s, most of the deadly diseases worldwide were due to infections, but today only one of them are in the top 10. Which one's that? Lower respiratory infections, which is number four. Huh. And obviously heart disease and cancer are one and two. Right. But if you look at low and middle income countries where sanitation and living conditions are not optimal, along with them having higher rates of malnutrition, four of the top 10 causes of death are due to infectious diseases, including lower respiratory infections at number three, Mm -hmm. HIV AIDS at number four, tuberculosis at eight, and malaria at nine. Hmm. So that tells you something. It does. Yeah. And since we mentioned the plague, (laughs) I thought it would be a good time to bring up a fun fact related to it. Right. Okay. So I got this from a book that you got me for Christmas a while back, Uncle John's Four-Ply Bathroom Reader. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I knew that would come in handy one of these days. Yeah. I mean, there's some great stuff in there. So there was an excerpt in there, and it said that back in the 6th century, the plague raged throughout Italy, and the Pope during that time, Gregory the Great, asked the healthy people to pray for the sick. Mm -hmm. And the plague at that time was so deadly that most people died shortly after the symptoms occurred. And the most foreboding symptom was severe chronic sneezing, and so sneezing became synonymous with imminent death. Uh Uh-huh. So the Pope then told healthy people to tell those who became ill, God bless you. And if no well-wisher was around to invoke the blessing, the ill people were advised to say aloud, God help me. Mm -hmm. And the seriousness that a sneeze was regarded was also used in the other expression, not to be sneezed at. Right. So it's amazing that all of these expressions are still used today. Yeah, I know. And I stopped using God bless you when someone sneezes because after knowing its true meaning, I just feel that that person doesn't need to be blessed because they're not going to die from the plague. Exactly. Yeah. Gesundheit just sounds better anyway. That's true. Okay, good. Now, there's got to be some positive results from vaccinations. You talked about how smallpox is pretty much wiped out. And it could be from that. It could be from the hygiene improvements and things like that. But what are the positive results that have occurred from vaccinations over the years? Well, I mean, in general, vaccines have saved many lives, especially in parts of the world where living conditions are very poor. Mm -hmm. And a researcher who published a report in Vaccine Magazine in 2003 estimated that vaccines annually prevent almost 6 million deaths worldwide. Okay. Another published reference in 1999, which I found on the World Health Organization website, showed that in the United States, there's been a 99% decrease in incidence for the nine infectious diseases for which vaccines have been recommended for decades, Mm -hmm. along with a similar decline in deaths and diseases stemming from them. Okay. Yeah. The smallpox vaccine definitely helped to wipe out this infectious disease worldwide. I don't believe it occurred only because of the smallpox vaccine but it did play a huge role. Okay. So other factors involving smallpox were found out and applied, which prevented it from spreading. And I thought I'd go over this. All right, go ahead. So the most important was to isolate any individual who contracted it. Yes. It was thought that smallpox was easily spread by casual contact with an infected person. But according to Dr. Walter A. Orenstein, who was the director of the National Immunization Program at the Centers for Disease Control, 
He said the transmission of smallpox occurs only after intense contact, which was constant exposure of a person that's within six to seven feet for a minimum of six to seven days. Mm. And he also reported that 92% of cases in Africa came from close associations. And in India, all cases came from prolonged personal contact. Okay. So this is important to know because if there ever was a biological terrorist attack using smallpox in America, just practicing isolation alone, plus the fact that smallpox has a slow transmission rate, according to Dr. Tom Mack from your neck of the woods, USC, Mm -hmm. University of Southern California, he says that the total number of smallpox cases in America would be less than 10, which is a far cry from the millions postulated by the press, not to mention the fact that they'll be pushing for mandatory vaccines. Wow. Yeah. And the other major infectious disease that vaccines have been credited with basically wiping out is polio. Right. Uh, This is true in the United States that it's been eradicated since no new cases of wild polio have occurred in the Western Hemisphere since 1991. Mm -hmm. Now, I clarified the last statement with wild polio since there have actually been people who have contracted polio since 1979 via the oral polio vaccine. Oh, wow. Yeah. I also learned this week while researching polio via the World Health Organization website that there are actually three different types of polio viruses. All right. So type two has been wiped out worldwide, but types one and three are still occurring in limited areas in a few countries. Hmm. So they're still trying to eradicate that. Okay. Yeah. Now, over the last 60 years, there's been a change in the number of vaccinations that are being required for children. In what ways has that changed? Well, from 1963 to 1988, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention vaccine schedule had recommended 24 doses of vaccines for children starting at two months of age all the way up to 18 years of age. Okay. So in 1986, after a four-year campaign by the pharmaceutical industry, Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Mm -hmm. And this gave liability protection to vaccine makers, medical professionals, and government agencies for any death or injury that resulted from a vaccine. Right. So basically, they can't be named in a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And instead, there's a vaccine court that's been set up to hear cases and pay out any damages from, of course, taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. Since 1988, the vaccine court has adjudicated over 17,000 petitions that were filed with the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, and about two-thirds of them were dismissed. Hmm. And so for the remainder, there's been a total compensation paid out over the last 30 years of $3.9 billion. Okay. And since this law went into effect, the pharmaceutical companies invested heavily into the research and development of new and riskier vaccines, especially since they knew that they had a product line for which they couldn't be sued. Right. And we're now about 30 years later, and after adding just a few vaccine doses to the schedule every year, the CDC's childhood vaccine schedule has grown from 24 doses to the minimum now of 70 doses. That's crippled. Yeah. Believe it or not, if you have a baby today and vaccinated him or her according to the current schedule, your baby would receive more doses of vaccine by the time that he or she was six months old than most baby boomers had received by the time they went to college. It's unreal. I know. Yeah, it is. And of course, vaccine profits, when that bill was introduced in 1986, were about $750 million per year. Mm-hmm. By 2014, they skyrocketed to, get this, $32 billion a year. Wow. 
and they're expected to reach $59 billion per year in just two years from now. All right. Well, there's a lot of things I can say about that, but we want to get onto the rest of the information. So what are some of the most problematic reactions that are attributed to vaccination? All right. The main reactions to vaccines that are listed on medical websites include soreness, redness, or swelling where the shot was given. And other reactions include hoarseness, sore, red, or itchy eyes, coughing, fever, shivering, fatigue, muscle aches and joint pain, headaches, and itching. Okay. So that's what they say are the most common reactions. So now let's go beyond that. All right. So there's other potentially severe reactions and they don't always happen right away and sometimes occur months later, making them harder to prove. Right. So these are the good ones. Uh, Chronic immune weakness involving frequent infections, such as repeated inner ear infections can occur. Okay. There's this thing called encephalopathy, which is swelling of the brain, primarily in children under three. Sometimes kids get what are called screaming fits. They're also called cre-encephalique, and that's actually a sign of potential brain damage. Hmm. They can lead to autoimmune diseases, allergies including asthma, skin allergies, and food allergies, Mm -hmm. seizures, and epilepsy. Okay. Of course, autism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Personality changes and behavior disorders including hyperactivity and attention deficit. Mm Mm-hmm. And diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and sudden infant death syndrome. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Now, when I took my vaccination seminar up in Cleveland in 2001, the seminar material included the statistics from the 1999 National Health Interview Survey, which showed that at that time, 31% of U.S. children had a chronic health problem. Hmm. Today... 54% of American children are chronically ill, developmentally delayed, and or obese. And this is likely due to the fact that more children are eating more sugar and drinking more soft drinks, right? uh, exercising less and playing more on their computers and smartphones, Mm -hmm. and plus they're receiving many more vaccines. Right. Now, pro-vaccine authorities always use the blanket statement that vaccines are safe or vaccines are proven safe whenever anyone tries to question them. Yeah, of course. But the fact is, is that there is no safety testing of the 70-plus vaccine schedule as a whole. Mm. For example, the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies has stated that key elements of the immunization schedule, for example, the number, the frequency, timing, order, and age at the time of administration of the vaccines have not been systematically examined in research studies. Mm. So the bottom line is that our children are basically guinea pigs being given these drugs in untested high amounts and combinations, which can lead to potentially serious problems. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies that produce these drugs are protected from any liability if any harm is done to anybody. What a little scheme that got set up there. I know. But the good news is there's actually a campaign to repeal the 1986 National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act led by the National Health Federation. Hmm. Yeah. This outstanding organization is based in your neck of the woods in California, and it's been around since 1955, and they've been on the front lines fighting for health freedoms and protecting alternative medicine approaches. I highly, highly recommend that everyone listening, please check them out and sign up as a member. I've been one since my early days in practice, and their annual membership is just $36 a year, which includes their excellent publication called Health Freedom News, which is published quarterly in you know, it keeps you up to date on campaigns that they're involved in, 
news about things like GMOs, artificial sweeteners, and other unhealthy things we need to know more about, and terrific articles on various alternative medicine approaches. So right. their website is www.thenhf.com, and we should definitely leave a link to it in our notes. Right. Along these same lines, I also recommend that you go to a webpage that they created, which will help you urge Congress to take action on childhood vaccine safety. So we can leave a link for that too. Okay. And finally, there's actually a senator from Pennsylvania, Mike Fulmer, who announced in January of this year that he'll be introducing informed consent legislation that would require information regarding the risks and supposed benefits of vaccinations to be given to patients and parents. And in addition, he's also planning to introduce a resolution to Congress to repeal the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which we went over earlier, you know, and so that drug manufacturers become responsible again when their vaccines cause serious harm or even death. Wow. Yeah. I imagine that's not going to go through quietly. Yeah. Yeah. If only taxpayers knew the truth that they're the ones funding court cases, I think that if enough people found out about it, we'd be able to fight it. Well, the taxpayers don't even know about the money that's being paid out for sexual harassment allegations against congressmen for the last 30 years. Think they're going to find out about this? I kind of doubt it. All right. So that's good information. Now we're going to dive a little bit deeper. And I want to have you explain what adjuvants are and why they're used and what do they have to do with reactions to vaccinations. Okay. So in my opinion, these are the real bad guys as far as vaccines are concerned. Okay. But when you look these up on all the various medical websites, they're definitely put in a positive light because adjuvants are defined as substances added to a vaccine to boost its ability to induce protection against an infection. Okay. It sounds like something good. Yeah. And they're supposedly there to help to stimulate the immune system to produce more antibodies for a longer lasting protection. Right. So their reasoning and excuse for them is that they're needed to improve weak immune-enhancing vaccines or vaccines that perform poorly without these added to them. Mm -hmm. Sounds great, but let's look at some of these substances. Okay. So they include mercury, which is right. also called the Marisol, which everybody knows is highly toxic. Yeah, we talked about that in an earlier episode. Yep. And due to public outcry, fewer vaccines contain mercury, but it was replaced with an equally toxic heavy metal. Guess what that is? Aluminum. Yep. Of and I'm not going to go into detail into all the problems with aluminum toxicity in the body, but if you want more details, then you can refer to our podcast on detoxification number 23. Absolutely. Because that was a good episode. Mm -hmm. Another adjuvant uh, found in these uh, vaccines are ab aborted fetal cells called diploid cells, which can potentially cause autoimmune disorders and autism. Now, how did those get in there? I don't know. It's pretty sneaky. That's like, okay. Yeah. Just continue. I know. And of course, monosodium glutamate, also known as MSG, which many people have tremendous sensitivity to with some of the more common reactions, including numbness, headaches, fatigue, disorientation, and heart palpitations. So let me guess, the guy who discovered saccharin that was a chemist that spilled a bunch of chemicals on his table and sticks his finger in it and licks it and goes, oh, this is sweet. Maybe we should use this for people. Mm -hmm. It's probably he had some Mugu Gaipan or something like that 
and accidentally knock that over into a vat of vaccinations. And that's how they decided to put MSG inside them, right? Who knows? Yeah, that's about as likely them. as anything else. Yeah. All right, next on the list is uh, formaldehyde. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a preservative, but it's also a, a known cancer-causing substance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Antibiotics and the overuse of them can disrupt the balance of good and bad bacteria in the gut, and they're often found in vaccines. Mm-hmm. Here's a good one, squalene. Uh, this was an experimental adjuvant that was added to vaccines around the time of the first Gulf War and has been implicated in Gulf War syndrome. Oh, nice. Yeah. Peanut oil, despite the fact that peanuts are a common allergen and some people have severe allergies to it, peanut oil has actually been used since 1960 and may not even show up on the vaccine package insert since vaccine manufacturers don't always report all the exact ingredients in the vaccine growth medium. Oh, good grief. Yeah. And then we come to GMOs, genetically modified organisms. They're present simply due to the fact that vaccines are now being made with genetically engineered viruses. Hmm. Yeah. And also the active ingredient in Roundup called glyphosate has also been found in childhood vaccines, which we went over in a previous episode. You know, it sounds like a witch's brew. (laughs) The guys standing around the vaccination kettle with their black cats and their big caps on their head and their broomsticks. Let's throw a little MSG and glyphosate and aborted fetal cells. That's what it sounds like is that they're coming up with some concoction to ward off these evil viruses for heaven's sakes. I know there there's gotta be better choices than this. Yes. So other potentially toxic adjuvants include acetone, which is a solvent found in paint thinner and fingernail polish remover, ammonium sulfate. So this is used as a nitrogen soil fertilizer, primarily. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Phenol red indicator, that's used to check the pH of swimming pools and spas. (laughs) And can you guess what this one is? Phenoxyethanol. It is... Also known as antifreeze. Oh, good. We all know what that's actually used for. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I know. Unreal. Okay. Well, it sounds like either it's Witch's Brew or it's an episode of that movie Saw where the guy figures out how to creatively murder people that's gruesome. Uh, So now, which vaccinations do you think it would be foolish to miss, despite the adjuvants and all the other stuff? Are there any that you feel it would be a real mistake for somebody to miss for their children? All right. Well, there's quite a few. Let's start with the military. You know, it's standard procedure, but especially going overseas to countries that may resort to biological warfare, it's Mm -hmm. obviously a good idea to be vaccinated against any potential threat along these lines. Right. In third world countries, because, you know, because of poor sanitation, we went over this earlier, poor living conditions and malnutrition, these, you know, unfortunate people are at a much higher risk for contracting and succumbing to infectious diseases. So it's definitely warranted there. Right. Of course, health healthcare workers, uh, people working in a facility such as a hospital, nursing home, or a free clinic, or the health department are regularly exposed to people with serious infectious diseases. So it obviously would be wise for them to be vaccinated and it's basically required in all of those locations. Okay. A deadly epidemic, you know, as far as the general public, if there truly was a deadly epidemic, not the avian bird flu or the H1N1 flu, which the government tried to push for mandatory vaccinations, but they turned out to be duds. Mm -hmm. You know, if there is a true epidemic, then receiving a workable vaccine, hopefully with minimal side effects, 
minimal adjuvants. To combat the deadly infection, let's say, for example, the Ebola virus from Africa, mm-hmm. then that would also obviously qualify. Okay. And then the flu vaccine for high-risk populations, you know, I would be totally 100% in favor of all high-risk people, especially the elderly for receiving flu vaccinations if they didn't contain adjuvants like aluminum, for example. Right. But going back to the vaccine seminar again that I attended in 2001, I learned that people receiving the flu vaccine for three years in a row, which is five doses, increase their odds of getting Alzheimer's disease seven to tenfold. Wow. All right. So forget those. Yeah. So the fact is that very few people, including children, die from the flu virus, but instead from complications from the flu, primarily pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And that can be treated with antibiotics, colloidal silver, and high doses of vitamin D and C. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, these are all the various different things having to do with the vaccinations and the negative effects from it and what the adjuvants do. Now, if somebody has a personal or a religious objection to certain vaccinations, is there anything they can do? Yes, but this depends on what state you're in. So it's up to you to check with the laws of the state that you live in. By the way, these laws can change without notification. So it's important to check them periodically. Okay. Now, in the state of Florida, you'll find the laws on vaccination exemption. They call it immunization exemption because, again, they use the term synonymously. Right. It can be found at floridahealth.gov. And there's actually three types of vaccination exemptions in Florida. Mm -hmm. One is a temporary medical exemption, which must be filled out by a private medical provider on a specific form called the Florida Certification of Immunization. And all this does is it just delays the inevitable of receiving specific vaccinations by a certain expiration date. So it's not really an exemption, but rather a way of holding off getting vaccinated until a future date. Okay. The first true exemption is a permanent medical exemption, which is documented by a medical doctor, again, on the same form, the Florida Certification of Immunization. Mm Mm-hmm. And this must include reasons for the exemption based on clinical reasoning or evidence. So this could include documented allergic reactions to previous vaccines or what's called proof of immunity. In other words, the doctor has documented that the child has already had the infectious disease, like let's say chickenpox. Right. And there's also specific lab tests that can be run to show that a specific infection has occurred in an individual. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other vaccine exemption in the state of Florida is based on one's religious beliefs, and it's issued at a county health department and based on established religious beliefs or practices, and it's called the religious exemption from immunization form that you need to find for that. Yeah. So that means that one cannot avoid being vaccinated in Florida due to their personal philosophical beliefs. Mm. It's got to be one of, it's either medical or religious. That's right, because this is a free country. Yeah. Except when it comes to vaccinations. That's right. And as you know, in California, the mandatory vaccine law SB 277 went into effect in 2015. Mm -hmm. And under this law, both personal and religious exemptions were removed, leaving only medical exemptions. That's right, because California is a state that obviously really cares about the people. At least when there are elections, you'll hear about that. Just when it comes to real life. It isn't true. And I wanted to go into more detail about this in California, some stats and so forth. Okay. 
So under that law, all non-vaccinated children, unless they have a medical exemption, are barred from attending both public and private daycare and schools. Mm-hmm. What happens is it puts parents at risk for being sued, not only for not having their children immunized, but also they can have their children taken away by Child Protective Services if they don't do it. Mm-hmm. Pretty bad. It is. Unfortunately, there's also been an aggressive campaign by the medical and legal establishment to threaten and attack physicians who write exemptions for children to be excused from the vaccine schedule for medical reasons. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd give you one example. Okay. Um, there's a California pediatrician by the name of Dr. Bob Sears who had to go before the California State Medical Board after he wrote a letter in 2014 excusing a two-year-old patient from undergoing vaccinations after the child's mother described an adverse reaction to a previous vaccine. Mm -hmm. So the board accused Sears of committing gross negligence and threatened to revoke his medical license, but instead they put him on probation for 35 months as of just June 27th of this year. Hmm. And his medical record noted that his mother said that after the child's two-month shots, his bowels and bladder shut down for 24 hours. Wow. And after the baby's three-month shots, she said that he was limp for a day and didn't act like himself for a week. But that wasn't good enough. So getting back to uh, SB 277, the California Mandatory Vaccine Law, again, um, just one year after this law was enacted, California Department of Education released the figures that autism rates in California public schools rose 7%, and the highest increase was amongst kindergartners at 17%. Mm. And all told, since 2001, autism has increased sevenfold or 700% in California. All right. And then one more thing, you know, I recommend reviewing our podcast episode 23 on detoxification, where I go into detail about glyphosate again, which is found in Roundup. And it's also prevalent in many GMO foods and how it correlates with the increase of autism cases since the mid 1990s. Right. And then we went in episode 24 on autoimmune conditions, showing a graph that not only shows glyphosate correlating with autism, but many other chronic diseases. And then in podcast 33 on asthma, We talked about how glyphosate has also been found in five childhood vaccines, and it actually has 25 times higher levels in the MMR vaccine than the other ones. Wow. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of glyphosate and Roundup, just a few days ago, a California man with terminal cancer was awarded $289 million successfully suing Monsanto, the makers of Roundup and glyphosate. Right. And they implicated Roundup as the likely cause of his cancer. And there's actually something like 500 more cases like this pending. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this before we end? Yeah, I'd like to talk about an incredibly workable alternative to vaccinations, and that is homeopathy. Okay. So homeopathy is a holistic alternative medicine approach that's based on the belief that the body can cure itself following the principles of what we covered earlier, natural immunity. Mm Mm-hmm. Homeopathy was created by Samuel Hahnemann back in 1796, which is actually seven years before Jenner's smallpox vaccine. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's based on Hahnemann's discovery and his doctrine that likes cure likes, which means that a substance that causes the symptoms of a disease in healthy people can cure similar symptoms in sick people. Hmm. Yeah. And this method uses highly diluted natural substances to relieve symptoms. And the belief is the higher the dilution, the more potent the homeopathic remedy. So what you get is the minimum dose with the maximum therapeutic effect with the fewest side effects. That's great. 
Yeah. Well, I put down to have us do a future episode on homeopathy too. Yeah. And so I'd like to give an example of an incredibly effective homeopathic remedy that I carry called flu terminator. Okay. Since we're on the subject of vaccines, I've been using it for many years as a flu remedy. And before this product came out, I I used to recommend three different flu remedies, one to be taken for prevention, Mm -hmm. uh, one taken at the onset of the flu, and one that you can take if you've had the flu for a few days. Right. But the wonderful thing about this product is that it has all the ingredients in it to handle all three scenarios. Okay. Yeah. It's very rare that any of my patients that take it as a preventive remedy ever come down with the flu. And it also works really fast, especially when taken at the onset of contracting the flu. Just to give you an example, I came down with the flu in January this year due to missing a night of sleep and being exposed to a few patients with it earlier that week. But taking it along with a high dose of vitamin D helped me knock it out quickly. My fever broke within 24 hours, and I fortunately didn't miss any work since it happened over a weekend. That's good. Yeah. One of the homeopathic ingredients has been around since 1925, and it's the primary ingredient in the popular homeopathic flu remedy called oscillocosinum, which you can get in any health food store. Mm -hmm. And the reason I like flu terminator is that it has not only this, but eight other ingredients making it more complete than just taking an oscillocosinum. Okay. So of course, since it's not a drug, the manufacturers can't claim that it can cure the flu, but instead it's marketed to temporary relieve flu, fever, and associated viral conditions. All right. Yeah. And do you know how long the shelf life is for that? So if years. People, so if people want to get some in preparation for the upcoming flu season months from now, they can get it and keep it at their home and not worry about it expiring. That's right. Okay, good. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. And we are going to go into the aspect of homeopathy in a later episode because it's a very interesting way of treating conditions or helping people with certain things that they have going on that they may not be aware of. So that's going to be in the future, but we've got some interesting things that are going to be coming up. And the next episode, we're going to talk about something that affects people Well, it actually affects everybody. It's blood pressure because everybody's got blood pressure if they're alive. Uh, But some people have blood pressure that's too high and some have it that's too low. And we're going to talk about those things in next week's episode. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.